0: What really excites me is like working on developing a process that's used to supply patients with medicine around the world.
1: Patrick Fierce, doctor and mentor, has said that Patrick invents more chemistry on a Friday afternoon than most people in a week. In 2020, he's led Merck's research on COVID-19 antiviral drugs. So those Friday afternoons are really worth something, indeed. In this season three episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of Chemical and Engineering News' 2021 Talented 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Fear about his early education in Iowa and the choices that led him to his role as a global leader in process chemistry.
0: Yeah, so growing up, I mean, I just grew up in a typical Iowan family, you know, surrounded by farmland. And, you know, I, I worked my way through high school and working kind of odd jobs at grocery stores or busing tables, telemarketing. You know, I didn't want to spend a lot of money on college. So I went to the community college initially, um, which was near my parents' house. Um, and, you know, I had some interest in science. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I it's probably a... <laughs> Bad reason to choose a career, right? But I started watching like medical shows like House and Scrubs. I was like, oh, that, that seems pretty cool. And completely, you know, oblivious to it, so <laughs> far fetched <laughs> from reality. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll be pre med, I'll go into med school and become a doctor. I transferred to the University of Northern Iowa, uh, I think in 2007 um, after two years of community college. And then I started taking, you know, pre med classes, biology, chemistry, you know, organic chemistry. And then the organic chemistry class, um, you know, it was pretty daunting because that's you know like the med med student killer, you know, the pre med killer. Like, oh, you take organic chemistry and you change your your career. So, I, you know, I was very uh, intimidated. So I actually read the textbook ahead of time. You know, it was like a twelve hundred page book. I, I read it in advance, and something just sparked in me. Like, oh, this is so cool. You know, the the creative aspect, like the multi step synthetic planning, just understanding how reactions work. It was it was really cool, and then. When I was taking the chemistry class, I had no idea that there was even like jobs for chemists. I mean, of course. I applied to a bunch of grad schools, you know, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT. I I didn't get into any of those, Uh, but I did get into Illinois. So I actually started my PhD at Illinois. So John Hartwig was there at the time. So it is true. Yeah, so I started grad school there. And then after a year or so, he announced that he was moving the group to Berkeley. So then I actually got into Berkeley kind of through the back door.
1: (laughs) What role did John Hartwig play? uh in, in your development.
0: Working in the Hartwick group was, I mean, a dramatic change from what I experienced, you know, doing undergrad research. And now, you know, the Hartwick group was, I think at the time probably like thirty to thirty-five people. Amazing to be around these people that, you know, were doing, you know, really cool science that was being published in, you know, good journals and getting good recognition. And then obviously John has, you know, developed chemistry that's used around the world and, you know, really practical applications. And then, you know, John Hartwick specifically, I think, was a phenomenal uh, advisor. He, you know, takes training and teaching very seriously, especially, you know, for young grad students, teaching them how to think critically, you know, teaching them all the fundamentals. And there's a lot of things he does that goes above and beyond to you know, really train people to be scientists.
1: And during your PhD, you already were doing, you know, high level
0: science. You have a bunch of publications,
1: really interesting work there. Was there a moment where you understood that you could actually be a chemist full time? That, that could be your future in your career.
0: I guess, yeah. I mean, the first year or so was, was pretty tough, to be honest with you. Maybe in my f- second or third or fourth year, I don't know when, um, I started coming across, you know, process chemistry papers. Uh, and that was really interesting to me. It's like, oh, there's actual, you know, practical applications of organic chemistry that can have impacts in the real world. And, it's, you know, it's not just publishing for the sake of publishing. So, you know, once I started learning more about process chemistry, that's kind of motivated me to finish my PhD and then ultimately get a job.
1: You went into Merck. Uh, which probably is also not particularly easy, it must, must be a sought after type of job, right? And yeah. uh, was it, did you have Merck specific? Or did you have like a few, you know, pharma was your thing? Or did you want to go into process chemistry specifically for some reason, you know, maybe the practicality reason you were, you were mentioning before?
0: Yeah, so I was specifically interested in process chemistry. Mm. Um, I didn't actually apply to any like med chem, discovery chemistry okay. jobs. Well, Merck was really at the top of my list. I had met many people from Merck kind of in my final year of grad school and super fortunate to get an interview and, and land a job. Merck is definitely a, you know, in- intense place to work. It's, you know, very fast-paced and competitive, and as you mentioned, there's a huge focus on, you know, innovation and new technologies. But that said, I think they also what's really nice about it is they take a very serious view on like developing scientists and making sure people are successful. So when you start, you know, it's very daunting, but there's a lot of people there to help you be successful, teach you how to become a process chemist.
1: So moving from an academic research lab into process chemistry, there must be a complete change of, uh, you know, pace and and world and objectives, you know, Uh, and yet you seem to have quite a lot of opportunities to develop, you know, new methods and uh, produce innovation. Uh, That seems quite unbelievable for for a process chemistry uh a
0: person um uh is, is the normal america is, is everyone doing that i would say it's certainly supported you know to have these side projects um it's just honestly looking back i don't know how i did it to be honest with you it's <laughs> yeah. you know it's hard to find the time to actually do these things because you know a lot of these things were completely unrelated to projects um you know so you know during the day you don't know, have a full-time job as a process chemist and then trying to squeeze in time develop these you know, new methodologies and, you know, write papers and do the ESI and all that. It takes yeah, a, lot of, a lot of work. I, honestly, looking back, it's, it's crazy that, you know, what, what we accomplished. But I think what motivated us to do it was like, you know, fun. Like we would get in the lab, you know, for an hour at a time or so and just run reactions, just, you know, chat and, you know, come up with new things. And it, it was really fun.
1: It's interesting the way you describe it, because it seems to be motivated by passion for chemistry, you know, a bit of... A, f- a friendship component there, having having someone like minded, you know, common interests, yep. right? So, something fun to do. Yeah. And I was kind of expecting that you had some practical motivations. I don't know some problems in your process chemistry that you couldn't solve, and you know, you were looking for some alternative methods, and and that that might not have been the you
0: know the, the trigger for you, but it doesn't seem to be there. Yeah. So I would say there wasn't a specific project that we were trying to impact, but you know, Kevin had been there for you know seven or eight years or whatever. And I'd been there for maybe about a year or so when we started doing this. And we had kind of noticed, you know, like a few things in general that were tricky. One of them being, you know, making phenols, which on paper, it looks like it's not really an issue, but in practice, it's it's actually not trivial. So then Kevin and I kind of came up with this idea to make phenols more general and, you know, under milder conditions, better functioning tolerance and so on. And, you know, we thought it'd be somewhat practical, but we didn't realize kind of the full potential so actually, you know, when we were developing, even before we published it, and you know, we started talking to people about it, and almost immediately, even before it was published, it was demonstrated on a couple kilo scale for a project where they needed to make a phenol and no other method was working. So that was that was kind of cool. <laughs> like right <laughs> off the bat, people were using it in process chemistry, and then you know we told you know the medchem colleagues about it. We published it, and then you know over the last few years, it's been used you know hundreds and hundreds of times at Merck. So as it's it really become like a go-to. Merck
1: as well. As far as you know. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of academic, you know, published examples of people people using it to make substrates or in total synthesis, um, and then I have friends at other companies that say, you know, they use it quite a bit and you know their colleagues. So, so let let
1: let me get yeah. into some of the details here because this is interesting. So the yep. you know, the way you make phenols is typically, well, is it like um, an aromatic nucleophilic substitution basically? Yeah. So yeah, you start from the. Uh, uh, are in halide and you know uh, use very strong basic conditions and you do the nucleophilic substitution yeah is is the problem that when you start having complex multifunctional compounds then you basically hardly have something which is tolerable of the reaction conditions so you were looking for is, it was that was that the start of the project
0: yeah yeah if you have for example an aryl halide you can make the phenol via snar if you're doing snar typically you use like something like methoxide and yeah. then you demethylate it Afterwards, because hydroxide itself is not a very good nucleophile. You can use it in certain cases. And you can also do like CO coupling, you know, with hydroxide. But the issue is, you know, there are strongly basic conditions, high temperatures. And in real molecules, you're, you're gonna have functional groups that are not tolerant to that, especially things like esters or stereo stereocenters, where these just get destroyed. Um, so we were really looking for something that could react under mild conditions um, that would tolerate basically every single functional group you would ever have in you know, a complex molecule that's where we came up with these hydroxide surrogate uh, reagents where they're, you know, they're oxygen-based nucleophiles, but they're quite acidic. So they react under mildly basic conditions. They're also great nucleophiles. So then they react. And then in situ, they actually fragment once you make the initial CO bond to reveal the phenol. So it actually, yeah, we had a couple of examples, one with uh, acetohydroxamic acid, and then another couple of papers with benzaldehyde I've, oxime.
1: I've seen your paper with the oxime. So, uh, and it's interesting because then you use oximes for something else as well because you know it, it yeah. seems like a very interesting creative thing or lateral thinking maybe yeah uh, do you think this might actually get uh some r- proper relevant space in in the organic synth- synthesis community
0: uh i hope so I, I think once people use it they realize how powerful it is so i, I think yeah, you know, as more people become aware of it and they actually use it i think it should become more have
1: mainstream. you have you used it yourself in any process chemistry work
0: uh, I have, yeah. It's been used in a few different process chemistry projects. Okay, that's interesting. So let me step back a little bit, because
1: you know, some of our audiences might not be completely familiar about the workflow in pharma. Right? So mm-hmm. process chemistry is really that part of the work, and maybe you know, jump in and correct me if I describe it wrong, where you take drug candidates from coming from medicinal chemistry, drug discovery, And, you know, you actually need to make a process that can be put into a plant to make them commercially viable, right? Uh, And and scale them up and, you know, having something which is robust. Uh, In the old days, medicinal chemists had to just use whatever methods to produce as many compounds as quickly as possible. So process chemists usually had to start from scratch pretty much. Is this still the case these days or has the sort of... Culture or the pharma workflow changed a little bit or evolved in, in any way? It
0: definitely is a case by case basis, but a lot of times, like the the goals of discovery chemistry are very different than yeah. the goals of process chemistry. So, like the syntheses that, you know, med chemists are using could be more for, you know, SAR or, well, typically for SAR, um, where it's more, you know, divergent and, you know, complexity oriented. Whereas in process chemistry, you have a single target. So you just want the best way to make that one target. Yeah. So in many cases, the synthesis completely changes. And you know, our goals are very different. In discovery chemistry, if your starting material costs, you know, a thousand dollars a gram, doesn't really matter. But in process chemistry, you know, you need something that costs, you know, a dollar a gram, actually, typically much yeah. less than that. So the goals are completely different. And a lot of times we start from scratch, but also we have a lot longer time yeah. to figure out a synthesis to a molecule. So that allows us to invest in, you know, coming up with new reactions, coming up you know, a lot of times with enzymes to so catalyze reactions, um, you know, evolving enzymes can take a lot of time. And then, yeah, new technologies such as biocatalysis and you know, flow chemistry really come into play.
1: And I'm assuming you just rely on the specialist for that. So once you have something which is amenable for a biocatalytic transformation, so whatever other type of specialized catalysts, you probably have the right the, the specialist teams helping helping help out in, in the project.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a really strong group of um, in the bio Uh, catalysis group and protein engineering that you know can identify the initial enzymes do the evolution work and really develop you know these enzymatic transformations they're you know awesome team a lot of them are trained synthetic chemists or even process chemists that moved into biocatalysis later in their career Um, and there's also a team in flow chemistry that you know has expertise in flow chemistry and you know developing these processes where they can benefit from flow
1: do you enjoy trying new things and getting into completely unexplored areas for you? Do you see this as learning, growing opportunity, or you? are you ever scared of those?
0: Uh, I th- I think initially it's kind of daunting. Yeah. Like the you know the first time I was using or doing a biocatalytic step, I think from the outside it's like oh biocatalysis is so complex and scary. <laughs> yeah. And easy to lie. You know, then you start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you start working on. It and you're like okay, this isn't that different. No. Than you know normal chemistry, and you can still optimize it in the same way. You can obviously there's subtleties that make it much more complex in certain cases. But I think yeah, it's normal to be kind of maybe scared <laughs> initially. But you know things are not as complicated as they may seem. And again, there's people there to help you, and there's experts that you know can help um, you figure out what's going on and come up with a solution.
1: Do you think the average Synthetic organic chemist is a bit conservative, and they look at these sort of novel techniques with suspicion.
0: Um, I think at Merck not, but maybe in the broader community. I think, yeah, I think enzymes are becoming more and more mainstream, but I think there's still a huge barrier to to doing that. And even other technologies like high throughput screening, which you know Merck's been involved with for I don't know, fifteen years or time, yeah, I don't even know when. Yeah. Um, but I think even that, like in grad school, you know, we tried to implement that technology, and I think there's a huge hurdle to just doing it for the first time. Like setting up a 96 well plate of reactions just seems so overwhelming. But once you start doing it, you realize the power and the you know the capabilities of that.
1: So the the, the challenge is really setting up the, the, the work culture to be able to stimulate this sort of mm-hmm. you know kind of de- daring approach. Right? You, need to, you need to dare yeah. trying, you know, you seeing seeing the value, accepting it. The... We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. Have you heard about the rebranding of Alfa Azar, Acros Organics and Maybridge into Thermoscientific? Well, if you haven't, why don't you have a look at thermoficial.com slash chemicals and find out about Thermoscientific, the new kid on the block of laboratory chemicals. That is also where you find the podcast new home and a lot of information about our guests. And now, back to our conversation. I'd like to jump on some of some others of your sort of lateral works, because you know your uh, methods for synthesizing phenols is, is one. You know, I was reading a couple of your works on the CH functionalization of pyridine. That I noticed, you know, the commonality with the use of these oximes uh, so sort of reagents, and I was wondering whether that is that is the common point between you know your work on the phenols and this one, or if it's a complete chance. Uh, it, it seemed to me like a potentially very interesting case of chemical creativity and lateral thinking.
0: Now, yeah, the kind of common theme between a lot of the, the work I published at Merck is like breaking like nitrogen-heteroatom bonds, yeah. a lot of times oxygen, but in other cases, like sulfonamides cleaving the NS bond. Yeah, I, there's definitely commonalities there, but they're kind of serving different purposes. Sure. Like in the phenol case, like it, the nitrogen-oxygen bond fragments reveal the phenol, and it also makes the oxygen more nucleophilic. And then, you know, in the pyridine case, it's acting as an oxidant, and then the sulfonamide case, like it's a way to, you know, cleave the N-S bond. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, at some point I was reading this. I said,
1: "Well, this guy really, really likes these oximes." And and, and yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, it it just makes a lot of sense, right? Because you know, once you find the utility in a way, you know, you're tempted to kind of look at it from different angles and say, "Well, maybe there's potential for doing something else with it." And yeah. I was wondering whether this was, at some point, at any point, your logic, or if it's just it just happened
0: by chance. For a lot of these projects, it was identifying synthetic gaps or just like repeated mm-hmm. problems that you would see like functionalization of pyridines. You know, a lot of times people make the pyridine anoxide and then functionalize to position that way. And that has its own challenges, you know, strong oxidants, strong uh, dehydrating agents and, you know, kind of limited scope. So the motivation was, you know, come up with kind of a more practical way to functionalize pyridines and also using something that's, you know, inexpensive and, you know, simple and kind of a fairly unique mechanism, right? Where you activate a pyridine towards nucleophilic addition and then you have this intramolecular fragmentation uh, to to aromatize the pyridine
1: the the approach is not particularly different from you know the more traditional going by the n oxide. the idea is yep. is doing an electrophilic activation of the adjacent carbon right uh, so yep. that, that's yep. the way that's the way it work but you use uh yeah you use this chloro this is an aldoxime isn't it yeah yeah so that binds to the to the nitrogen so you form the pyridinium salts and then you basically have your you know your uh, your your carbo which is more electrophilic, and you can use a yeah. nucleophile. So what, kind, what yeah. kind of nucleophiles can you use that? What, can, what kind of functionalities you can add to the pyridine with this?
0: Yeah, so in the original uh, Jack's paper, it was primarily cyanide. Mm. And I think that works for a few reasons. One, it's a pretty good nucleophile. But the other thing is, I think it acidifies that CH bond adjacent to the nitro. So when you initially add, you have that dihydropyridine adduct. So I think the cyanide helps acidify that to then be deprotonated and you know, ultimately re-aromatize re- the ring. So there's a few other nucleophiles that worked okay, you know, like proof of concept, you know, malinate or methoxide. Um, but what I was really interested in is amine nucleophiles, because two amino pyridines are extremely prevalent. But the issue is, you know, <laughs> I tried hundreds of reaction conditions to install amines um using that same activation concept, and it just didn't work. The amine would react at the oxime and just, you know, kick out your pyridine starting material. Yeah. Or it would add to the two position carbon but then instead of fragmenting how we wanted to it would just open up into this um you know zinky aldehyde type thing where the the periodine ring would just snap open and then it's dead end so that's what um led me and uh, this guy Soo Hong kim who is a super superstar um intern with me a couple of years ago to develop what we call uh, the aminator yeah which kind of gets around this these issues and it was completely of the reagent um, to basically make two amino pyridines uh, from pyridines. Oh,
1: I understand. It's 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 a really interesting work, and I, you know, this is immediately evident, right? You know, the, the utility is obvious, um, as you say, because of the ubiquity of you know sort of pyridine or aminopyridine type of groups. And mm-hmm. so it, you know, it's an old brain to understand why you went there. What was kind of surprising to me is, uh, you know, the work you did on the sulfonamides, because the logic seems to be different. The way I've always looked at sulfonamides is are more a like a sort of terminal functional group, you, you know, I never, mm-hmm. maybe because I'm not a good enough chemist, but I never look at them as a sort of symptom, <laughs> right, yeah, functionality. Yeah. But w- with your work, it looks like it can actually be pretty handy, a pretty handy thing to functionalize. So you can change the, you know, the substituent pretty much on the sulfur or, or, or on the on the nitrogen in a pretty flexible way there. So can you describe yep. their work?
0: Yep. Yeah. So this came out, again, like for another kind of random conversation, Kevin Maloney and I uh, were having one day in my office. So At the time you know he was working on this compound that had a sulfonamide a primary sulfonamide and there was interest in making the same compound but with a methyl sulfone there so instead of nh2 it's methyl so you know instead of going back to the very beginning you know going through this you know 10-step synthesis or something to make the compound you know we were wondering is there any way to convert this compound that we have you know 100 kilos of into this methyl sulfone and on first glance you know, you're like oh that's impossible yeah, you but, can't do you know, it yeah, how could you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah I don't, I don't know if we came up with a solution that day but i think the next day you know we came back with some ideas about you know oh what if we can cleave the ns bond how we eventually did it and then you make a sulfinate, and then if you have a sulfinate, you can do whatever you want you can trap with methyl iodide or you can do you know various other functionalizations so then this becomes a platform for converting sulfonamides into anything
1: this is all beautiful work is still thing that you could you could make for a great medicinal chemist as well I know you don't want to go there but you know and there's, there's uh, uh, maybe not, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe not. <Yeah. laughs> anyway do you find more satisfactions from these sort of things you know there's a nice dose of problem solving or more from you know playing a role in something as big as you know, developing the process for something that, you know, promised to end the pandemics, you know, or at least yeah, they are yeah. all in it. I mean, the, I, I know I'm kind of going on a tangent, but, uh, you know, I think we need to get there, right? So you you you, you work on developing the process for the Molopina you know, the COVID-19 mm. pill, as, as it's called. It, it, it you yeah. went to the press. So, yeah, you're you're kind of famous for that, aren't you?
0: Uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think both things are very satisfying. Like coming up with new methods that are used broadly is definitely, you know, exciting and, you know, motivating. But yeah, what really excites me is like working on, you know, developing a process that's used, you know, to supply patients with medicine around the world. You know, whether it's, you know, the COVID-19 molecule, monopuribre, which I can talk about, or, you know, other things I've worked on. You know, I think it's it's super cool to, as a prosecutor, like you come up with the way that the molecule is going to be made to supply millions of people around the world, it's just so cool that you know you go to a, a pharmacy or someone goes to a pharmacy and gets a pill, and that pill was made using yeah, chemistry. I made that. that you made, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That must that must be something, really. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's particularly important, right? You know, obviously because of the time you are living. Um, did you have like a tougher timeline and and targets because of how urgent and important the problem was? Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. This was a. Project like no other, and it was also <laughs> my first time leading a project. So, you know, in I think May of 2020 or so, um, I got promoted to principal scientist, which is you know leading projects and leading groups of scientists. And then you know a few weeks later, I got assigned to be the chemistry lead for Molnupiravir. You know, and this was you know the fastest paced program in probably the history of you know pharma. Awesome experience, and you know it was my first time leading a project. And there was there was two efforts going on. So one of them was. What became the manufacturing process this is a five-step synthesis from uridine and um, this has been used to make i think around two hundred thousand kilos okay. of molnupiravir so far which is you know many many millions of uh, treatment courses and there was a second effort ongoing with a separate team again um, which i was fortunate enough to lead on developing really the ultimate synthesis of molnupiravir. and we came up with a three-step route uh, starting from ribose and uracil and it uses a couple of biocatalytic steps and a really interesting um, glycosylation step uh, using some novel enzymes that you know never really been used before, and you know way to recycle ATP with pyruvate oxidase and air. So there's like a cascade so reaction on.
1: there. Is, is it is it in yeah. in, a, is it in vitro or is it in a in a, in a cell environment? Is it done in fermentation
0: conditions? The enzymes are you know fermented and and then isolated. The isolated, go, okay. Take those and then use them. Yeah. yeah.
1: So do you see yeah. this as being the future of, of of the manufacturing? I know I know you made a lot a lot of drug now and probably don't need to produce much more. For in the short yep. term, but uh, I, I suppose that the you know monupirvir it, might have like a broader indications as an antiviral go, going forward. Uh, uh, do do you, do you foresee Merck uh, switching to the to, to the to the new routes to to make it in the future? Yes,
0: yeah, so I, I think it, it's it's possible at this point. As you mentioned, you know we're making it all with what we call the Gen One route. Um, so based on you know how much we improve that route and you know all of our manufacturing sites around the world, were able to produce enough to meet demand. Um, the second gen process is, you know, definitely shorter. And, you know, we've demonstrated on around 100 kilo scale. So at this point, we haven't moved that forward to commercialization because I think we can meet demand uh, with gen yeah. one, but, you know, things may change if, you know, demand goes up or, if you know, other indications um, arise.
1: What, why What is the reason why the, you know, the biocatalysis road is, isn't the the ones the one you pick is it just you needed more time for development and it was just the time that was too strict
0: yeah just you know to develop a process and demonstrate 100 kilos is you know one aspect of it but then you have to you know implement it at commercial sites you have to do validation and this this takes a lot of time and then of course there's you know regulatory components to it as well so i think if that was yeah basically it, it just takes more time and you know by the time we kind of. Got it into a place where we could go into validation, you know the Gen one route was already validated and you know being used to you know, make thousands of kilos uh, a year. You must be incredibly proud though.
1: Do you, do you ever think about it? Did you wake up in the morning and say, oh, I played a role a, a real a real role in the, in the pandemic?
0: Yeah no yeah, I, I think back on it is just it's incredible that I was involved <laughs> with that and you know the, the chemistry that you know I worked on in the lab with my own hands is now being used you know, to make, you know, enormous quantities of this medicine that's now, you know, being distributed around the world. So, yeah, it's super cool. And then, you know, seeing it, you know, in the news and, you know, the New York Times talks about this compound in the Wall Street Journal. So it's just, it's just super cool to, to have been a part of it. How many other drugs be,
1: beyond this have you worked on that actually made it to the market? I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, so at, early on in my career, I worked, you know, again, as just like an individual contributor on Zerbaxa. So this okay. is septolazine sulfate, it's the active compound I worked on. So this actually was already on the market when we started working on it, but it's just the route was not, uh, didn't meet our standards. So we kind of tweaked the route developed a new process and then uh, refiled that. So this this is an antibiotic um, that's been on the market for a while. Uh, and then another compound I worked on, Relobactam, um, the MK code is MK7655. Um, so this is a beta-lactamase inhibitor that's used uh, for antibiotics. So. Yeah, so I've been pretty fortunate to work on a couple of things that I've seen on the market. Well,
1: I, know, I know a lot of a lot of chemists in pharma they they work whole careers and they never touch anything that actually goes to the market. So you've been good, probably. I've been More lucky, lucky yeah. But you know, there's there's a luck component. Uh, maybe you know. working for Merck helps as well, I suppose. But uh, uh, you know, congratulations. That's 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 really that's really fantastic. You want you must be yeah, proud. So. You have to be proud if you're not. Um, so uh, <laughs> you, you know. Uh, I, I would go on forever, but, you know, you probably have better things to do than speaking <laughs> with me all day. Uh, I, <laughs> it's uh, you need to save the world. Um, um, so it, what do you think is the most important thing, you know, in your job? Because um, it's incredibly complicated and the, you know, there's a lot of components. So you, you certainly need a, a healthy dose of creativity and you are demonstrating that you need discipline at the same time. So mm-hmm. what, what do you think is the most important one?
0: It's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, from a, a scientist point of view, you know, solving problems and, you know, actually coming up with solutions to, you know, real world problems. But I think what's also important is probably equally important is, you know, working on teams and, you know, really, you know, working together in a team to like actually deliver this, you know, the solution to the patients.
1: You're speaking about keeping in mind why you're doing it, right? But, but particularly when you're mm-hmm. stacking a problem and you know, the solution isn't in sight. You know you must have a motivation somewhere, right? It's, do you ever feel like this is a problem i would never be able to solve?
0: Ah, uh, I, I think every problem's solvable, but the solution may not be as elegant as <laughs> yeah, you okay, initially planned. And- yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. There's always a way to like make something, but it may not be as beautiful as you put on paper. I think it's a good time to
1: come to my last question, which is always the same in my, in my podcast, you know, it's a good time to stop and look backwards and, you know, say, you know, after all you've done, what would you recommend? What, what would be your suggestion to someone who is just starting in their career?
0: You know, looking back on what's been most impactful for me, not only getting through my PhD and getting a job, but, you know, now, you know, at Merck, I think having a strong network and, you know, talking with people, learning from others is so incredibly important. I think, you know, for students looking for a job or looking, you know, to do a postdoc, I think who you know, you know, and building connections with people is so extremely valuable. You know, and you know, I owe a lot of credit to, you know, talking with people I met at conferences to actually getting me a job, you know, interview at least at Merck and, you know, and then talking with people at Merck, you know, just chatting with people, learning from others has been instrumental in, you know, coming up with these side projects, you know, I mentioned with Kevin being a good example and then you know talking with a lot of other people and you know learning from them and becoming a successful process chemist so my advice is you know grow your network you know learn from others and you know don't be afraid to ask for help
1: that was dr patrick fear principal scientist at merck and one of the chemical and engineering users started at 12 Thanks for joining us for this season 3 episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life and keep an ear out for more. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Few's book, video, podcast and other content recommendations. Look in the episode notes for a URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. This episode was produced by Sarah Briganti, Matt Ferris and Matthew Stock.